Hi, yes. Welcome to MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. This is day number two. We started yesterday in Baltimore. We are headed a little bit north to the city of brotherly love. We are previewing the Philadelphia Phillies today. And joining me, he is the host of the Lockdown Phillies podcast. Please welcome in, not the former Mariner catcher, but the host of the Lockdown Phillies podcast, Dan Wilson. Dan, how are you doing today? Greg, I'm doing great. I appreciate uh, the intro. It's funny. I, you know, we were talking before that I also work at a WIP here in Philadelphia. And one of the hosts of my very first shows was like, any relation to the Dan Wilson, the former Mariners catcher? I'm like, no, none at all. But I like to claim it. Um, The other day, someone tagged me in a post thinking that I was that Dan Wilson. So it has its perks and it's a pretty common name. So you can understand why the misunderstanding could go that way. But I'm happy to be here. I've actually met Dan Wilson a couple of times. I used to work for a Mariner minor league affiliate. He's a great guy. You seem like a great guy. Let's get into this. It runs in the name. It makes sense, you know. Yes, absolutely. My first question for you, Dan. Yes. Is there an expectation for a playoff berth this season, given how much the Phillies have spent, not just this offseason, but in prior offseasons? I think there's pressure to make the postseason. I think that pressure has existed for a few years now. If you're asking my own personal opinion, no, I don't expect this team to make the playoffs, though I do expect them to be competitive. And I've been thinking about like win totals and stuff like that. Most sports books have it 81, 82 games, something around there. I think a little bit north of that is realistic, maybe 85. Now you're looking at a National League and a National League East that's very competitive and that probably doesn't get you in. The Braves took the Dodgers seven a year ago. You go out west, the Dodgers and Padres are both in the NL West. You figure two playoff spots go to them. So maybe they can sneak in as a second wild card. Maybe they need some things to go right. Back end of the rotation still has concerns for me. The bullpen needs to take strides from where it was a year ago, being the worst in 90 years in Major League Baseball. So I think it's possible, but I wouldn't necessarily say that as of today, I expect it. I know that you're a smart baseball man because you hit on a couple of things that I'm going to get to a little bit later in the show, but I want to start off first with the manager. I went to Northwestern University, so I have a really soft spot in my heart for fellow Northwestern alum Joe Girardi. After one year, is it pretty clear to you that Girardi is an upgrade over Gabe Kapler? Because look, I live in San Francisco. I was not impressed with Gabe Kapler last year, especially with how he handles pitching. I'm an old-school baseball guy. I think Joe Girardi got screwed out of New York. I thought he was the best manager available in the free agent manager market after the 2019 season. I think it was the best managerial hire of any team that hired a manager after 2019. What do you think of Girardi so far? So I'm going to make two statements here that I think can both be true. Do I think Joe Girardi is an upgrade over Gabe Kapler? Yes. He's experienced. He's won a World Series at the Phillies' expense. And I think he knows how to handle himself and manage a clubhouse. I think he's proven that. And I think you're absolutely correct. It seemed like he got a little bit of a raw deal out of New York, took a year away, and is well-respected in Philly. Now, you could maybe answer this better than I can. I always thought that Cap Gabe Kapler, I actually liked more than a lot of people here in Philadelphia. And the only reason why is because I actually felt like he took the brunt of a lot of issues that were there that remained there last year with Joe Girardi. Like last year, they were two games below 500. They were basically a 500 team. The two years Kapler was here. They had a September collapse. Those two seasons, 
they did it again with Girardi. He doesn't always speak in a way that people like, especially in Philly. It's easy to kind of rip him for that. He sometimes relies on analytics too heavily for some people. I was interested to actually get your perspective because I always think of, and maybe this is a bad way of thinking of it here on the East Coast, of San Francisco, it's Silicon Valley, very progressive thinking place. Like, is the sense around Gabe Kapler an overall positive or negative one after year one? Because as I'm seeing it, the Giants had a lot of COVID opt-outs last year. We're not supposed to be in contention. And there they were on the final day of the season with the Phillies, them exceeding expectations, the Phillies falling short of it. So here's my thoughts on Gabe Kapler. You have to remember that Gabe Kapler replaced Bruce Bochy, the most beloved manager in the history of the San Francisco Giants. It's a tough act to follow, yeah. Right, and Bruce Bochy is an old-school manager. Where the Giants got into trouble over the past couple of years is that they overpaid for past performance. They overpaid guys like Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford, the Buster Posey contract, while it was great at the time, he had just come off his NL MVP season. It looks horrible now because he's a guy that'll hit maybe 10 homers and struggles to stay healthy. He's no longer a National League player. The thing that bugged a lot of people about Gabe Kapler is that Farhan Zaidi came from this Dodgers new school analytics school, and they weren't used to the fact that Johnny Cueto would be pitching great and be pulled after five innings. And I think that that was one of the biggest sticking points. It's like you have a couple of starters that are decent, especially Cueto, and you're not going to let them ride. And that bothered me to me. And he was going to the bullpen too early with a bullpen that is not nearly what bullpens of Giants past were. So I think that people gave Kapler a hard rap because he's not Bruce Bochy and that he's not the guy that is going to just let a starter ride like he could with Madison Bumgarner or Matt Cain or Tim Lincecum back in the day. But I think the thing with Kapler is, is that he comes from the same school that Farhan Zaidi does, and that's why they're paired up together. So maybe whereas the Giants went in a more new school direction, the Phillies took a decision to go more old school. And I think that one may be reactionary to the other in both cases. That's fair. So I, I guess my follow-up question to that is, and I also have some thoughts, is it fair to say that the Giants, like, did you expect the Giants to be in the play, like contending for a playoff spot on the final day, expanded playoffs or not last oh, year? Oh, no, absolutely not. Like, so I mean, is it fair to say that Kapler had that roster overperform? I think that that's a fair assessment, but I think you also have to realize that with the unbalanced schedule, the Giants got to play the Mariners, the Rangers, the Angels, who are all awful. And then in their own division, the Padres and Dodgers are going to be the two best teams in the National League for years to come. So they struggled against both of those teams. The Rockies completely collapsed after a hot start, and the Diamondbacks were awful all year. So the Giants overperformed expectations, but... Let's go into the world of actual baseball like we're going to have this year and see where the Giants perform now that they're going to have to face the rest of the National League. That's that's all fair. And so to back to your original question, I do think Girardi's an upgrade. Again, Kapler rubs some people the wrong way. I just thought he was given a bad rap here because everyone wanted to blame him for all the downfalls of the team and ignore the fact that the bullpen was horrible and that the roster just wasn't a playoff roster. And at the beginning of the year, they were projected to be about a 500 team. And at the end of the year, they came out a 500 team. And I'm sitting here saying, look, you can't blame 
Gabe Kapler for all the downfalls of this team, whether he's the best guy to lead this team or not, and just leave that for you to believe that you're going to ignore the rest of the roster. And then Joe Girardi comes in last year and basically puts up the same season. Now, do I have higher expectations for Joe Girardi based upon his track record to have this team take the next step? Yes, I do. But also the roster has been given improvements. And I think this is the best Phillies roster we've seen in some time dating from before Gabe Kapler. So I'm happy Girardi's the manager and I'm ultimately happy with where this team is going. You were talking about the Giants playing a week schedule last year. That will not be the case for the Phillies this season. They're in a very tough division. And I'm looking forward to seeing how he responds to that challenge. We are here with Dan Wilson of the Locked On Phillies podcast. Let's get into the roster now. It's two years in. Are the Phillies happy with what they've gotten from Bryce Harper? And is there any buyer's remorse given the length of that contract? So I think you knew what you were getting in the length of that contract up front. He was pretty clear that he wanted a long-term deal and basically to finish his career out somewhere. Now, I'm not going to tell you that in year eight or year nine or even year 12 or 13 that there won't be some remorse then, but you're basically buying the front end of his prime right now. He goes through streaks like a lot of hitters in baseball, and it can be easy to say, well, that guy makes is making $330 million. We're pointing to him to lead this team. But last year, the Phillies were tied for the fifth most runs in baseball and didn't make the playoffs again because of the worst bullpen in nearly a century. I look at this roster now and I say they're basically bringing the same offense back and the back end of the rotation has struggles and the bullpen still has holes in it. And Bryce Harper was the lead in that offense. He led the team in home runs or has led the team in home runs and OPS each of the first two seasons he's here. I don't view it as buyer's remorse. I think the Phillies are overall, and I'm overall disappointed with where the team has been, but I don't look at Bryce Harper and say that's on him. Do I hope they can get like an actual MVP season out of him at this point and to make the contract worth it? Do I expect that? Yes, I do. So I guess from that sense, maybe they're still hoping that can come at some point. But right now, I wouldn't call it buyer's remorse. I think the honeymoon phase has just died down a little bit, given that it's been two years and this team still hasn't made the playoffs. How big is the JT Real Muto injury? And is it cause for alarm going into the regular season? The team doesn't seem to think that it is. Uh, it's on his non-catching hand, and they seem to think he'll be back by opening day. Obviously, he signed a big time contract himself this off season, five years, $115.5 million. Again, I, you know, I'm only dealing with the information the team and the local beat reporters essentially put out, which is that if this does leak into the season, doesn't seem to think that it will be very long. Now, of course, anytime you have a catcher who's hurt, there's reason for concern and he's an aging catcher and he's now into his thirties. And that was part of the reason why there was concern to signing a guy like that to a five-year contract anyway. You mentioned Buster Posey. Catchers are oftentimes given money and length based upon previous success, and then there becomes some buyer's remorse at the back end of his contract. So you may see that down the road, but right now I don't think there's any major cause for red flags. We might not get to see him in spring training as much as I would like, but my expectation is that sometime in April he'll be back catching for the Phillies. We're here with Dan Wilson of the Locked On Phillies podcast. So kind to join us here on MLB Morning Coffee's 30 teams in 30 days. I like Didi Gregorius. Was bringing him back the right move for this team at the price that they did? 
So I wanted him back before Dombrowski was hired. Dave Dombrowski is president and they put this new regime in place. The Phillies had the opportunity to give him a qualifying offer and did not. And ultimately, they basically settled on a two year deal. Now, it makes sense from Didi's perspective why you want the two year deal, because there's a massive shortstop class coming out a year from now. And it also makes sense from the Phillies perspective, because maybe they entertain one of those guys and one of their top prospects in the organization, Bryson Stott is a shortstop. Look, Didi Gregorius, he's a likable guy to have around. He put up good offensive numbers a year ago. You figure he could excel most in a hitter's ballpark like Citizens Bank Park. He's not necessarily, you know, a world beater on offense. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he took a significant step back over 162 games with the Phillies this year. He certainly likes Joe Girardi, and I think that was a pull for getting him here the first time and getting him back. Ultimately, it was the years more so that I was upset with like you could offer him the qualifying offer for one year, 19. If he says no, you get a compensatory draft pick and you're in the same position anyway. But instead, they waited around and kind of put themselves in a place where if they didn't resign him, now you're forced to play a guy like Scott Kingery every day, who was one of the worst players in all of baseball a year ago. And he's still, by the way, in your center field competition going on in spring right now. So I think they put themselves in a position where they kind of had to do it to remain competitive for this year and in the short term. Will they regret the two-year thing? Maybe, but I, ultimately I'm glad that he was back. Reese Hoskins had a gigantic increase in his walk rate in 2019. He led the National League in walks. Is that the kind of player the Phillies hope that he's going to be, or do you think that that increase in walk rate was an aberration and that the strikeout rate that he has, he had over 150 strikeouts each of his first two full years. Is that more of the player that they expect him to be? Yeah, so he's another guy who is streaky and even more so to a fault than, say, a guy like Bryce Harper is. Look, I think the Phillies have expectations for him to be the first baseman moving forward. He's another guy coming off of injury, by the way, in addition to Real Muto. He had Tommy John surgery late at, towards the end of last season supposed to be four to six months. They expect to have him back, if not by opening day, shortly into April. But in reference to like his walks or how much he's striking out, look, when Reese Hoskins is going, he's going. He's got a good eye at the plate. He's hitting the ball out of the ballpark. He's great to watch. But when he's when he gets into a rut, like you can sense it. I don't know how to fully explain it, but once he like builds up a few strikeouts in a row, it seems like every pitcher in the world has the book how to get him out. So I think the real answer to that question is, he needs to solve some of the consistency issues more. I have no issues. Again, maybe this is more of a new school, young analytical approach. I have no issues with him going up there and potentially drawing walks. Cause you have a lineup with Bryce Harper, Alec Bohm, JT Romuto also in it. You can get base runners on for those guys or just kind of keep the line moving. I have no issue with him being selective. And if ultimately that's going to lead to him zoning in on one pitch, getting in better counts and hitting more balls out of the ballpark, I'm for it again, need that more over the course of an entire season, not just in like one month here, one month there, if that makes sense. We're here with Dan Wilson of the lockdown Phillies podcast here on MLB morning coffees, 30 teams in 30 days. Does Andrew McCutcheon have anything left? I think he's got something left. I was sitting here debating the other day, how many games he can give you. He had an ACL injury back in 2019. He's not, Anyone who just hears the name Andrew McCutcheon and is like, wow, that's MVP Andrew McCutcheon. No, he's not. And the fact that the DH is not back in the National League hurts a guy like him 
because he's probably more of a defensive liability than anything. But I think it's realistic that he could give you, I'll call it solid production for 115, 120 games. Now, if you see him start to tail off, then you start maybe looking in another direction here. But I think Andrew McCutcheon is still generally well thought of within this organization. I think there's reason to believe, like if nothing else, he usually gives you a pretty good at bat. Like he might not have the same offensive numbers that he did, but he's not, he's, he's a smart player and that should keep him around. The comparison I kind of think of it is like, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but I like Brett Gardner in recent years, like he always puts together a tough at bat. He kind of sticks around a while. Now I know they're different players in a number of senses, but the way that he kind of grinds at bats together can still put some offense up for you. And he's not going to give you the same amount of games that he once did. I guess that's where I'm drawing that comparison. Alec Bohm had a fantastic rookie year, but I always am wary of sophomore slumps, and especially for a guy that is only two-plus years out of college. He was the third overall pick in the 2018 draft. Now, I spent five years as a minor league baseball play-by-play guy. I've been in these clubhouses, and I've talked to these roving coordinators. Guys are very conscious of high school guys versus college guys, and a high-level college guy, they expect, especially in a top-10 pick situation like Bohm, to get to the big leagues within two to three years. Number one, were the Phillies impressed with him coming into camp last year enough to just say, all right, you're our starting third baseman, let's go. And number two, how big of a piece is he to their success this year and the year after? Obviously knowing that he's going to be a huge part of what they do for the next five years down the road. So they micromanaged the service time a little bit last year. He was not on the roster to begin the season. They brought him up later, and I think they were very impressed with what they got out of Alec Boehm, a very kind of, as you mentioned, college guy, very major league-ready prospect, looked very proficient, didn't seem like there was a lot of development that still needed to be worked on with him. And he's a, he's a nice, pure hitter. Like, we were talking old school versus new school. In the age of baseball where we live in today, where even you look at a guy like Bryce Harper, the $330 million man, sometimes he just goes up there swinging for the fences and it leads to more strikeouts. Alec Bohm, by the end of last season, was the guy that basically everyone wanted up at the plate with base runners on where like you can't afford a strikeout. And you need a ball either hit into the gap or just a ball simply put in play. And he proved to have a clutch gene. The sophomore slump is always something to be wary of. He did it in a shortened season last year. This will be the first time we see him over 162 at the big league level. But I think he's huge for this team's success, to be perfectly honest. Like he is thought of as a middle of the lineup type of guy. Like I said, knock the base runners in, keep the rally going type, can hit for power when he needs to, can put the ball in play, put the ball in gaps when he needs to. And again, when I think of like the big time hitters in this lineup, I'm looking at Harper. I'm looking at they just re-sign Real Muto. You're talking about Hoskins, who has inconsistencies. But I'm putting Alec Bohm right in that conversation. In year two, I'm really hoping they can get the same kind of production that they got in year one, where he was second in rookie of the year voting. Because if they can get that, this offense will hold its weight in keeping this team competitive. Dan, there are certain guys in sports, whether it be baseball, basketball, what have you, that you just see them and you see them at the highest level and you think, why? And I remember covering this guy in the Cape Cod League. And when I saw that he was a second round pick, I'm like, why? And that leads me to Scott Kingery. Why? 
I mean, why did they give him a six-year contract when he had barely played any major league games? Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe he had not yet played a major league game at all. What do they see in this guy, and why did they tie themselves to a utility man that, as you said, was one of the worst players in baseball last year and doesn't look like a guy that's going to ever hit for any power or hit for any average? Well, they didn't see him as a utility man. They saw him as a mainstay in this lineup at the time. They saw a lot of potential at the time. And they jumped the market and say, we need to lock this guy up. We're committed to him. And we really think he's going to be a big part of this lineup going forward. Now, I do think it's sometimes a little like you look at the years. All right, it's six years and sounds a little ridiculous for a guy who was as bad as he was a year ago. Granted, he had COVID going into the season, but I mean, it was just like an automatic out. Six years for a total of 24 million, like it could be a lot worse. I mean, they were given Jake Arietta more than that in a given season. Do they need to jump the gun on that? Probably not. We've seen other teams do this. I mean, you look out in San Diego, like 14 years. I mean, Fernando Tatis, granted, so much better, like different category of good. He's got a 14 year contract. Like, you want to talk about buyer's remorse. How do you know he's going to be any of what he is now? 12 years from now like there is seems to be a sense of urgency in getting like just showing how committed you are to your young talented players and that's what they thought they had in Scott Kingery again I'm not talking about like a star maybe on the Tatis level but he was one of the most highly regarded young players in the organization at the time and they really thought they had something and I think they really want to salvage whatever potential is still there again he's kind of in this center field competition they got going on right now like him, Adam Hazley, Roman Quinn, and a controversial name in Odubel Herrera. But center field is the one spot as it stands right now when everyone's healthy for opening day throughout the course of the season that really is going to be a bit of a carousel and is up for grabs in spring training, and there's a lot of eyes on it right now. You mentioned Roman Quinn. This is a former high draft pick. He really hasn't put anything together at the big league level What's the deal with him? I mean, I understand from a player development perspective that if you draft somebody high, especially a high school guy like Roman Quinn was, that you want to give him every opportunity. But through the sample sizes that he has given us over his three-plus years of big league time, it's just not there. Is there anything that they really need to see from him? Or is it one of those things where he's on the roster, let's use him if we can, and if he's not successful, then it's a sunk cost and we'll eventually let him walk. Yeah. I'm fine with him being on the roster. I don't want him as an everyday player. Like I think teams have guys like that to come off the bench. He's obviously very, very fast. You can, he has some, he's had some trouble tracking balls in the past, but he covers a ton of ground. If he's on first base, he's like an automatic steal the second base. He can lay down and bunt and slap hit a little bit, but I don't want him getting four at bats a game. Like, I don't think that's the type of player he is. So if they're going to keep him in a bench role in a, Hey, we need a run, like a runner on second base and extra innings or a runner on first, because we got to get someone slow off the bases. Sure. Like put him in that role. If he's seriously in consideration for the starting center field job, I think we know what he is. And he's just not good enough with the bat to justify playing him every day. If you're serious about contending. We're here with Dan Wilson of the Locked On Phillies podcast here on MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. We thank Dan for his time and his consideration. Let's move to the pitching. All right. Zach Wheeler, we know what he is. We know how good he is. Aaron Nola, 
same thing. Zach Eflin, that's probably your number three starter. Four and five? Yeah, I mean, Vince Velasquez more than likely is going to crack that top five. You signed Chase Anderson, who's a wild card at this point. You signed Matt Moore, who we already talked about me living in San Francisco. I mean, one of the worst Giants starting pitchers of the last decade for how good he was in Tampa Bay. I mean, geez, the, the Rays fleece the Giants on that trade. Outside of those top three, I mean, how do you see this rotation filling out? So the word, the buzzword around this rotation and around camp and as the, we preview the season here has been serviceable. You need just, I, I think they're hoping to get serviceable starts out of Matt Moore and Chase Anderson. It seems like those are going to be your four and five starters, at least to begin year. We're in what year six of the Vince Velasquez experiment here in Philadelphia. Like everyone's just so tired of watching him start games. I think, you know what you have in him. You brought him back for $4 million. You brought back Moore and Anderson for a combined seven or eight, somewhere in that range. So they basically spent three to $4 million to assemble all of these guys. I probably would have been more in favor of, instead of doing that, taking that money and allotting it towards a James Paxton, a Jake Odorizzi. I know his name is still actually been flying around here, but they really like, <laughs> I don't even, I can't even do the impression of the noise you made, but the, eh, is like gen being generous here. Like they, I have serious concerns about this rotation and everyone's talking about the bullpen from a year ago, how bad it was. They made some improvements. I'm looking at this rotation saying, Look, the back end of the rotation is the potential over the course of the season to be so not productive that we need that consistent level of production from Nola, Wheeler, and Eflin to even maybe take another level step up. Like Eflin got his ERA down below four for the first time in his career. Zach Wheeler, I also believe, had the lowest ERA of his career last season. And Aaron Nola has struggled down the stretch in September on multiple occasions now. Like, either they're going to have to pick up the slack or one of Matt Moore and Chase Anderson is going to have to be legitimately good. And I'm not necessarily sure. I don't think I have faith in the latter. So it's going to have to come from the top end. And this isn't a bullpen that's good enough yet from a year ago where you can have Matt Moore, Vince Velasquez, Chase Anderson, whoever you want to plug in there, give you five innings, two runs, three runs at 100 pitches. And it's like, hey, the bullpen can just take it from here and expect that you're going to be contending throughout the course of a, a full season. Well, the thing that's encouraging about Eflin, as I look at his stats here, his whip was at 1.27 in 2020. Back in 2017, when he made 11 starts, he made 10 starts last year. His ERA was at 616, and his whip was at 1.41. Every year since 2017, his ERA has gone down. So you would think entering year six as a big league pitcher that he'd be more consistent and maybe that ERA comes down from 397 expecting to about 375. And I think that that's a reasonable expectation for a number three starter at this point. But like you said, when you sign guys like Chase Anderson and Matt Moore, who are not bona fide rotation pieces at this point, they are former aces of their respective rotations in Milwaukee and Tampa Bay that have completely flamed out, whether it be due to injury or ineffectiveness, you get concerned as a fan because this is a Phillies organization that has spent a lot of money in a lot of places 
and what could end up being part of their downfall is where they did not spend money. Fair, fair enough to say? Yes, I think that's certainly fair enough to say. And again, I think they're kind of throwing some stuff at the wall here. You're saying, look, we still think there's potential there. They clearly, they speak very highly of their new pitching coach in Caleb Cotham. And this is like the sixth new pitching coach in six years. So you're mentioning Eflin's development. And he's been kind of a cool guy to watch progress. But Or, or, or even a guy like Aaron Nola. Like the pitchers who have been on this team a while have had virtually no consistency in who has been coaching them. And they seem to like Cotham and they seem to have faith that they'll suck some potential out of the back end. They really like Eflin as that three starter and they like the one, two punch they have in Nola Nola and Wheeler rather. If they can get, look, and I think it was, I forget what the stat on Anderson and Moore was, but they've had close to double the amount of, quality starts I think it was than say a guy like Vince Velasquez is so it seemed the target seems to be serviceable guys to complement the pitchers they really really like in the top three maybe they flame out in Philly again that's a huge concern of mine maybe you're overworking this bullpen in days where they're actually pitching maybe they're just hoping something pulls together and works here what if one of the top three guys gets injured for a sustainable amount of time and now you have more Anderson and Velasquez going what if there's a COVID outbreak and you got more double headers again this year and you have to toy with a six-man rotation like that's where I think they might get burned we're here with Dan Wilson of the Locked on Phillies podcast kind enough to join us here on MLB morning coffee now we go to the bullpen you have brought it up several times in previous answers so I want to get to it now You upgraded the back end by getting a guy in Archie Bradley who's been an effective closer in his time in the big leagues. You pick up Jose Alvarado, when healthy, one of the most effective left-handed pitchers in the game. I remember seeing Jose Alvarado as I actually don't know how old he was because there was some question as to how old he was when he was a single-A pitcher in the Tampa Bay Rays organization. When that guy is on, he is on. But his issue is he's so big. He's listed at 245. I think that's being generous. When he's on, he is really good. But the rest of this bullpen is just a bunch of guys. And I looked at, they picked up Sam Coonrod, and I remember watching him in San Francisco last year and just saying, why? So I guess the question for you is, who in this bullpen that was already here has the potential to make the next step? So it's funny you mentioned the thing about uh, Alvarado. Like he was a guy that I liked watching in Tampa Bay too. He is uh, thick with a couple of C's as the kids say these days. He uh, is packing on some weight, but he's got some really nasty pitches in that arsenal in terms of who can actually take the next step. So I look at a guy like Hector Neris, who is annoying. Like people, Philly fans roll their eyes when you hear a name like that, because he can be frustrating to watch and has been frustrating to watch. And he oftentimes was tried to be, has basically been trying to be pushed into that closer role. I don't think he ultimately survives best in that role. I think they got that back end guy in Archie Bradley, something uh, Joe Girardi mentioned about a week ago is that basically they had no roles in the bullpen a year ago. And he would like to see more specific roles entering the season. You figure that fills out as, Maybe it's Bradley as your back end guy. Maybe Hector Neris as a setup type of guy. 
Maybe it's a guy like Jose Alvarado in a setup type of guy. Another guy who's flying under the radar who they got from the Marlins on a minor league contract is Brandon Kinsler, who had 12 saves and had a pretty good year in Miami a season ago. Look, they're going to have to Connor Brogdon was someone who came up through the organization who showed some good things at, towards the end of last year. Maybe expect him to take a step up. Ranger Suarez, another guy who's been on the team for a while. Maybe you get him uh, in some good bullpen spots. Jojo Romero's another name to look out for. They certainly seem to be transitioning more in under this new regime of Dombrowski and Sam Fold as your general manager of let's get some more hard throwers than we've had in the past. The old general manager, Matt Quintack, it almost seemed like he had a team rule against guys who would throw 95, which when you watch teams play in the postseason, it's like, why would you even try and build your team that way? You see all these hard throwers. They seem to be moving in that direction. A lot of it is potential and a lot of it is going to need to be worked with and managed correctly. But I think I don't think this bullpen needs to be like I was saying last year, the 29th best bullpen in baseball would have gotten them to the postseason. How about a third, the 30th best bullpen, just not the worst in 90 years like that would have been good enough. Now, that's not the goal, but I think this bullpen can at least be you don't feel like they're going to blow the game every single night like you did a year ago. And that's why I think there's ultimately this huge lens just focusing right into that bullpen on a nightly basis, because no matter what button Joe Girardi would push a season ago, nothing would work. I think it's more to the point that if you get a good start out of somebody and you get six to seven innings, you want to be able to have those two or three guys that come in that you know are going to finish the job. I think that's just the expectation at this point. Yes. How, yeah. How about we get seven out of Nola, seven out of a guy like Wheeler, six or seven out of a guy like Eflin. Maybe you go to Alvarado. Maybe you go to a guy like Naris. By the way, Hector Naris is another guy. Like You talked about Alvarado being on when he's on. Hector Naris, he's either... It's, it's like literally a switch. If that splitter splits, it's unhittable. If that splitter hangs over the middle of the plate, it's getting clobbered 50 feet over the fence. And it's almost nothing in between. Like he either drives your head up a wall and you know he's blowing it or he's lights out. And it's kind of inconsistent. But maybe if you're not relying on him so heavily to close the door in the ninth inning and finish this win you have, take some pressure off of him. You're not facing the top guys in the lineup coming up at the end of the game. Maybe that helps them out. Maybe the fact that you actually have other options you can go to. Like, I kind of look at reliever arms as stocks. Okay, if his stock is dropping, maybe Kinsler picks up the slack. Or maybe, hopefully, Bradley can lock it down in the ninth inning. If those two guys are struggling, maybe you look to a guy like Connor Brogdon to take that next step, as you saw that maybe he can towards the end of last season. Maybe another guy like Jojo Romero. Maybe it's someone we're not even thinking of. Like, there are relievers all the time that kind of pop up and, Play, you pitch well out of nowhere. It's a long season, but if you can get those outs, and again, if you can get those good starts, like you said, from the top end of this rotation, but really more so from the bottom end, if they can just give you, I'll call it competent innings and just make it so you don't have to get, like, just, just get me to the sixth, get me to the seventh and the bullpen will take it from there. And this year, I actually feel like they might close down some games a year ago. I never had that feeling. Two more questions for you, Dan. And this next one is not really a baseball question. Who was the Phillies reliever that was entering the game to where JT Real Muto got totally mean? Jared Hughes. Jared Hughes. That's who okay. He would sprint in. That w- that's just like his thing. And he would sprint in. And the Phillies were having bullpen issues back then. And it was great because Real Muto just gave a perfect look like, dude, what are you doing here? Like this, 
the team sucks. We're blowing it down the stretch here. And you're sprinting in like this is like a scene at a Rocky or something. And you, you think it, it's just all about you. Yeah, he, he was not a uh, huge fan of that. It's become a pretty big meme, not even just in Philadelphia, but worldwide. But it's funny that that's made its way um, kind of around the Internet. So, yeah, that, that was his thing. That wasn't like a one time thing that he would sprint in. I thought it was kind of funny and cool. But again, if you don't get the job done, no one really cares for your bullpen antics. Final question for Dan Wilson of the Locked On Phillies podcast. I'm ending every guest with the same question. What's the floor? What's the ceiling in regards to wins for this year? I think the ceiling somewhere. I So I said my predictions around 85. I suppose the ceiling would be high 80s, maybe sniffing 90 and a playoff spot. The floor somewhere in the 70s, fourth maybe even fifth place in the NL East. Like I, I think it really could vary that much. And it doesn't sound like that much, but when you look at the standings, the difference between 10 to 15 games is the difference between going to the playoffs and being bottom feeders in the division. Uh, this division has no shortage of talent. The Braves are world beaters that are legitimate World Series contenders. The Mets got better. The Nationals are just a, you know, now in their second year removed from winning the World Series. And for whatever reason, doesn't matter who they have in their lineup. The Phillies cannot win games to save their lives in Miami. So if they continue down that path again, it's not going to be a fun season here in Philly. Now they can get Matt Moore, Chase Anderson to give you like, you know, some quality starts, some in ERA somewhere in the low to mid fours, which again, it's not necessarily a very high bar, but I think it would complement the top end of your rotation well. And you'd be able to manage this bullpen a little bit better. And the offense plays, frankly, as well as they proved a year ago and two years ago that they can. I, I don't think this team being in the hunt come September. I think if we're talking about them in the hunt in September, it means some things went well. And I don't think it's out of the question. Dan Wilson of the Locked On Phillies podcast. Tell everybody where they can follow you, where they can follow the pod and any other work that you like to put out there into the ether. Yeah, for sure. So you can follow the podcast at LO underscore uh, Phillies. And you can also follow my personal Twitter at Dan underscore Wilson Four. got a lot of fun stuff going on, including some guests coming up here on the next coming weeks as we lead up to spring training or we're in spring training leading up to opening day. Rather, as we progress through spring training, uh, I we mentioned it briefly earlier. I also work part time as a producer here at 94 WIP in Philadelphia and do a number of other things part-time and if look if you ever just need some philadelphia sports jokes or some humor in your life uh i'd like to think of myself as a pretty good twitter follow as well so uh, once again at lo underscore phillies and at dan underscore wilson four that's where you can find me on twitter and you can't see this because we're only doing this audio but on the zoom call that we're on he's got a cardboard cutout of himself on his wall so i just want to i had that i just want so i don't know if you know the story behind this so the phillies like so last year obviously there were no fans anywhere in baseball until the playoffs in texas the phillies had to lead major league baseball in cardboard cutout attendance like they went all out. I know other cities were good. LA had a lot. I I'm think gonna San counter Fran with you with the Seattle Mariners. They the Mariners had a lot too. Outfield with cardboard cutouts. They had more cardboard cutouts in the bleachers at Safeco Field than they've ever had for a regular season game. 
the Phillies filled like the entire lower bowl and into the second. I mean, it was insane how many they got. But no, the Mariners were good. The Dodgers were good. It's not like they didn't have competition, but the Phillies were right up there in cardboard cutout attendance. And through a personal connection, I'll give him a little bit of a shout out, uh, Graham Foley. I was actually able to get myself after the first week of the season. It was first first responders. And then they slid my face right in there. And if you watch any Phillies highlights from Citizens Bank Park last season, You'll see that guy sitting like four rows behind the dish. It's absolutely great. Uh, I certainly missed fans in the stands, and I'm going to like hearing fans again. But I will say that it was a nice it was a nice boost to the ego, turning on the Phillies every night and just seeing your own face behind the plate. If I had to see my own face behind the plate, I might go blind. But <laughs> Dan well, Wilson, that, that to me is just like, I, I love that story. That's awesome. Well, it's also, you know, it's not necessarily a great look when the bullpen comes in and the first thing they see is your face and they blow the game every night. So <laughs> perhaps some blame should be sent in my direction. But in, in all seriousness, it was really cool what they did with the cardboard cutouts last year, not just with the Phillies across baseball. Other teams have done it in sports like the Eagles here in Philadelphia had a really good card- cardboard cutout population as well. And it was a nice fun thing. Like they had a day or a few days after the season where you could go claim it. So I have a photo with the cutout in the seat. And it was, by the way, that cutout had better seats than I've ever gotten. So it it was pretty nice. It was getting treated to padded, like third, fourth row diamond club seats, which is like the really nice section behind home plate here in Philadelphia. And I'm like, it would cost me way more to get those actual seats. And my cardboard gets treated better than I do. Ridiculous. That's the way of the world, though, nowadays, doesn't it seem like? Dan Wilson of the Lockdown Phillies podcast, thanks again for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That is going to be it for this edition of MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. Tomorrow, we head down to the Trop, where we preview the Tampa Bay Rays. Have a good day, everybody.